1: I also work with gender questioning teenagers and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture.
1: Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi
0: Stella. Hi Sasha. So today we're, we're covering some interesting topics around gifted and exceptional traits in young people. I think we've both anecdotally observed that a lot of young people who have gender dysphoria or have detransitioned just kind of intuitively strike us as being incredibly intelligent. Um, and we'll start by looking at this idea of giftedness, which, you know, as we were preparing for the episode, Stella, you said that's a uniquely American concept, so tell tell me a little bit about how do these traits show up in Ireland and how do you guys conceptualize exceptional learners, let's say? Uh, we tend not to in Ireland. If, if somebody
1: is a very bright kid, uh, it wouldn't really get commented on and it wouldn't get identified and it certainly wouldn't get tested and you wouldn't get put into special classes. Now, the parent might run around kind of talking about it, or the parent might secretly hold it to themselves. Um, But it wouldn't be said. Now, that could be just Irish kind of um, self-deprecating kind of attitudes that we often have here. But we don't have a system whereby the, the gifted kids are identified early and challenged academically so that they can reach their potential at an early age. Even further than that, when I was a kid, let's say in the 80s, I would have been maybe... 13 and 88 or something like that. Um, when I was a kid, you did get put into A, B and C classes at 13. And the A class were academic. The B class were, you know, average. And the C class were challenging, challenged academically. But now that would be considered very, very old hat. It would be considered a very old fashioned way of viewing children's academics. And so now nobody gets divided. You do do higher level or ordinary level, but that would be at 15 so we've really pushed it off and no 10 year old is getting pointed out unless they're Einstein or unless there's a mother who's very interested in getting them tested. Nowadays, if somebody says gifted, one anybody Irish would hear American, an American style mm-hmm. of parenting, an American style of pushiness, an American style of obsession with categorization an American style of intervention. You know, there's an awful lot of Americanization. And it is very much creeping into parenting in Ireland. There's no doubt about it. And so yes. it's said more in the last five years than it was ever said before, but it would still be considered, I'd be interested if listeners want to tell me different, but it would be considered mostly an American concept that's coming over. Yeah, yeah. But can you tell me what is going on? Because I don't understand it. People, I, I I, meet Americans who say they're gifted and they were put into a special classes and this is at young ages and my jaw hits the ground because I think the pressure on these kids. So what is the situation? How does it happen?
0: Yeah, you know, um, this is just reminding me of the exceptionalism that we see around certain types of traits, you know, that they're special and that they cannot be understood like a typical child. And while I hear you have some reservation about that, I also think it can be valuable to to recognize that a young person is learning in a way that is perhaps different that perhaps sets them up with special kinds of needs. You know, to be honest, you asked me about how does what is going on there? I'm not an expert. I also don't have children, right? So I I can only share with you what I know as a therapist, as a counselor. But um in America, there, there certain, seems to be a certain kind of cohort of parents that is interested in getting their child tested for giftedness. I don't think this is an across the board American thing. I've worked with, you know, different populations that are perhaps more working class and nobody's getting their kids tested for giftedness. In my experience, in like working class or lower income oh, families, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Though there are lots of kids who are quite exceptional that I've met that come from backgrounds like that, to me they're they're clearly exceptional. But their parents are just not thinking about it that way. But in my experience, educated parents who come from a certain kind of middle upper, middle upper class educated background, they're the ones who have it on their radar to start assessing pretty young their kids' abilities, and they're looking at milestones and they're trying to figure out if their child is reading at a young. Younger age than others. Like there's a little more, well, maybe a lot more deliberate and intentional focus on the child's academic abilities and their learning abilities. So in families like that, I think parents are much more likely to seek out testing and assessments and evaluations to kind of rank their kid and understand where their child is at. But
1: there seems to be some sort of system within the schools that if the child is, is assessed as gifted, they will go into a special class of other gifted kids.
0: Yeah, I think this is true. I mean... I, I'm not sure. I know that there are certain schools that will have special programs. So there'll be programs for special ed, which can include a combination of a lot of different diagnoses. So a child with autism, a child with a learning disability, ADHD, or even a gifted child might all end up in the same kind of program where the the idea is to tailor and, and individualize the educational curriculum and program to meet the child at their pace and what their needs are. Um, There are also kind of small private schools here in the U.S. that are geared towards um, kids with exceptional learning abilities or learning disabilities. And so you can find pockets of schools where kids are kind of insulated with other supposedly similar peers. But again, I think this is not true for all American families. But the ones who are assessing their kids for this, they can end up sending them on a specific kind of trajectory from a really young age. And, of course, schools will have specific programs within the larger school um, setting for gifted kids or exceptional kids or kids who are assessed in this way. Um, I think it's fascinating how many children with gender
1: dysphoria seem to be gifted there seems to be an extraordinary correlation going on here and I'd like us to explore that in this episode but I, I do also think that um the more we um categorize everybody the more I don't know oppressive it is for everybody and I I really think at a young age identifying a child as gifted might be helpful but it could also be a burden for a lot of children so I'm I'm leery of it. I'm not really into it. Um, I, I think the freedom to be a kid should be protected, and yeah. I, I think specialized later, if at all possible. Just from a psychological point of view, I, I'm not sure that identifying the you know that burden of early promise. I think it's a heavy mm-hmm. burden. Mm-hmm. I think it's a heavy burden, and I I I know as a kid. I was identified as clever because that's how you'd be identified. <laughs> There'd be no assessments, but clever kid. <laughs> but I remember I was a clever kid, and it's a sad story. I I I I knew I was clever, but I feared I wasn't as clever as other people thought I was, which is a very common, very common dynamic among clever kids, and they often say a sign of being clever is thinking you're not as clever as because you realise how much there is to learn. So, you yeah. know, little did yeah, I know. Yeah. But I, I knew I was clever. I knew people thought I was clever and I feared I wasn't that clever. And there was an entrance exam for the school I wanted to go to. And I, I was freaking out about it silently because I thought they all think I'm going to be brilliant, top of the class, 100 percent, and maybe I'm not and nobody will know it. Because up until that, I'd gone to an unusual school. I'd gone to an Irish speaking school. So I was out of things. And I thought, this is my first test, 12 years old. And you know what? This is a horrible story. I bottled it. I bottled it. I didn't go. I said I didn't want to go to school. Nobody questioned it. And I ended up going to a dreadful school. That re- I know. For the next five years. When you
0: say, I bottled it for... I said Americans.
1: about three days. Oh, oh, sorry. It means I chickened out. Oh, three, you just
0: never took it? You About three it.
1: days before the exam, it was weighing heavily on me, 12 years old. Just oh, saying nothing goodness. to nobody because 12-year-olds keep their secrets. They don't even know their secrets. They don't even know they're chickening out. Do you know what I mean? They don't know. I was all over the place. Anyway, very much this is the burden of early promise, very much identified as clever and it weighed heavily on me. And I didn't take the test and ended up going to a school that very badly didn't suit me. That De- was out of my neighborhood because I missed the main school because i didn't go I, d- I said I didn't want to go to the school but three days before the uh, exam
0: mm.
1: horrible isn't it
0: well it's it's kind of sad, and it's true that once you have that label put on you, a whole host of complicated psychological processes kick off you yeah. know even if you had owned that label, then there's the kind of embarrassment of claiming that you are more intelligent than other kids. And that can be a terrible feeling. I mean, there there's no easy way to be labeled as gifted. Whether you like the label or you don't like the label, I mean, it's messy. So I I really hear that. And mm. I do think that there's kids can kind of get set up with this expectation that they're going to be exceptional all the time. And then, you know, that can lead to this perfectionism whereby I'm like, well, what about when the kid just wants to be a normal kid and kind of irresponsible sometimes, you know, teenagers, teenagers need to have moments of, um, not being perfect. And so I think that label can, can exacerbate the traits that young people who, who are exceptional already have, which is wanting to be exceptional, wanting to learn as much as they can, wanting to be intelligent, wanting to score well. So, you know, it's not always a bad idea to assess a child and and get them the support they need. But we're just lifting up that this is really complicated. And it does come with all kinds of baggage. And I, I wonder too, I mean, I know this isn't a big deal in Ireland, but what about the parental psychology, right? Of parents who have a gifted child or they're interested in their child's giftedness? Do they talk about that with other parents? How does that end up playing out in their relationships with Oh, that happens family?
1: in Ireland. Oh, it well, does? It's not gifted though. Not mostly. Clever? It's called clever. Clever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're very prone to that.
0: I think of clever being like a cunning fox. <laughs> Maybe that's my American interpretation. <laughs> like Stella, like sneaky. <laughs> Sylvester Fox,
1: why do you think gender dysphoria and giftedness are linked? What is your thesis there?
0: I have tons of theories about this. Um, I guess I will start out by saying when we say giftedness in America, it seems like as I was researching this topic, there is not one standardized definition of what that even means. So we have another concept creep situation. I get the impression and any listeners who know more about this can certainly you know fill us in, but I get the impression that historically being considered gifted was an IQ score above 130. And I think in more recent times, you know, educational specialists have expanded this to talk about exceptionalism in different kinds of domains of, of learning, of synthesizing information. And even I know that there are people who study giftedness in like a physical way. So gifted athletes, for example, like exceptional physical abilities or exceptional musical abilities. So the word gifted can mean a lot of different things. Um, but, Uh, Just to kind of ground us in a little bit of of data, there are a couple studies that might help us answer your question. So one study um, that was done on gifted college students, it was, I think, 118 gifted college students in 2009, used something called the Ben Sex Roll Inventory. And this is an inventory that assesses masculinity and femininity. So of course, we're talking about stereotypes. But these gifted kids took this um, sexual inventory and they found that gifted students tend to be more androgynous in their behavior. So they actually do exhibit more, you know, cross-sex role-based behaviors than people who maybe are not gifted. And in Dr. Lisa Littman's parental report survey of adolescent onset gender dysphoria, she found that 47% were tested, gifted, and another 10% were tested as both gifted and having a learning disability. So it seems like just from looking at some of these numbers that people who are androgynous, uh, or people who are gifted are more likely to be androgynous. And a lot of the rapid onset gender dysphoria kids do have a gifted label. So, I mean, one of the big things to me that really stands out is gifted people are really intellectually curious and willing to think outside of the box. They like complicated ideas, they like intellectual challenges, and the more I learn about, you know, youth culture, ROGD beliefs and gender identity, it is a very complicated set of ideas. And I think that that's intellectually tempting for young gifted kids who kind of like that intellectual puzzle. They're very cerebral. And I just feel like there's something about that, that way of thinking differently than their peers that really comes naturally for gifted kids.
1: I wonder about that androgyny in that, t- in that study. Why would intelligent kids be more inclined to androgyny? My kind of brain keeps on just linking on that. like, But why? Why would they be more androgynous? Is it that they reject stereotyping behavior? Is it that they reject norms saying, why should I wear something if it's not comfortable? Is it? I think
0: it, I think it is. I mean, I think that highly intelligent kids tend to kind of march to their beat of their own drum in a way. And so, whereas, you know, perhaps this is again, just a guess, but perhaps, whereas another child might be very, very willing to copy and imitate their peers in order to fit in. Maybe a highly exceptional or gifted kid is willing to do something kind of different or unique or um, not necessarily blend in perfectly well with the other kids. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think they're used to being a little bit different. So they're not so easily falling in anyway. And so that they're not in the group. As much as other people feel part of the group, they're used to being on their own, so they they start suiting themselves that little bit more anyway. Because yeah, so therefore, but I I think we I fear we're missing something. I, I fear that there is an a, an added thing because while that it doesn't feel very satisfying as a theory, it doesn't feel comprehensive. It feels like there's more.
0: Oh, well, there's a lot more to it. On, <laughs> it on the whole thing. <laughs> well, for sure, kids. I mean, kids who are gifted also start asking these huge existential questions very early. Yeah. And I think they feel sometimes kind of this existential depression and angst. Yes. That can be very powerful around adolescence. Yes. So while they see their peers just being kind of flippant and having a good time of it and getting boy crazy or whatever, these are kids who are really grappling with huge life questions that are not easily satisfied. And I think they get kind of depressed. I mean, I do think a lot of gifted people really struggle during these transitional periods of life. So, you know, is that depression also exacerbated by the fact that they don't necessarily fit in well with others. Like I've talked to so many families, Stella, who say, you know, my kid has always been kind of unique and has been tested gifted and they were in a school where they really didn't fit in. Yeah. And then we switched them to a school with lots of other kids like them and they blossomed and they just made friends after so many years of feeling like an outcast. So I mean, I know that during the adolescent years, your friendships matter a lot. And if you feel alone, it's very, very hard. So I think like if you imagine you're grappling with the existential questions of life, you're feeling really lonely, you know, and you start to build. Like relationships with other young people online who kind of have similar interests. Mm. I mean, th- I think that kind of trio can explain at least part of it. It explains online um,
1: trans identification and finding a community and seeking a community for starters, and then finding a it, it does explain that. Doesn't really explain that the study was a twenty eleven of the androgyny. do do you understand it doesn't quite explain that it explains
0: the 2009 study yeah Yeah.
1: that that's the thing I'm I'm kind of still going back to and it's so noticeable but also I would say what lifts up for me is you know ASD and autism spectrum that does is very linked with androgyny and just basically not seeing the social norms of why you should wear that clothes or those shoes Mm -hmm. and then also not buying into them you know what I mean? And also, when you're gifted, and I think you've spoken very eloquently on this before, you can be very intense and very sensitive. And if you're intense and sensitive, um, you, you are inclined to not wear clothes that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And you have your clothes that are purely on the basis of they don't annoy me, these clothes. And that's why I wear them. And I don't care what they look like. Get away from me. I'm, I'm thinking bigger thoughts anyway. Mm-hmm. So all of that makes me think why gifted kids might be androgynous might be because they're, they're just going for they're going for clothes for different reasons than other people. Yeah. yeah. Is that what androgyny is? Is that just purely your clothes and your hair? I wonder.
0: Yeah, I, I think some of it is also behaviors. Um, I'd have to look at the inventory more closely to to answer that. But I think that's definitely getting closer. I think that's probably right. And I'm also thinking about, you know, let's just, let's just take a, an example to ground this in something a little more concrete. Let's say you have an adolescent boy who is, you know, coming of age, he's 13, 14, 15. And the way boys in his peer group gain like status is by being kind of tough or making certain types of jokes about girls or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A gifted kid who Is let's say more I guess justice oriented Or a little more deep yeah, Yeah He might say I'm not doing that Like I'm not gonna Violate my values to fit in Like I think that Ability to hold fast to one's own Values to stay true to yourself Like maybe that's something That highly intelligent or exceptional People are more willing to do I don't know But, but I'm just thinking like the the desire to conform may be just managed differently for kids who are exceptional. And, you know, that's also to, to point out, I think it can be very lonely to be a gifted kid, whether you have the label or not, even if you're just quirky and you just don't kind of have the same interests as other teenagers, you know, like I know kids who they're much more interested in like. You know, cross-cultural anthropology and like learning about something from like German history than they are about TikTok videos or something. You know, so y- even if you don't have the label, if your interests just make you an outlier, you may not be willing to conform. But it doesn't mean you aren't lonely. I think a lot of the kids who find themselves um, isolated like this have a really hard time finding their group and fitting in and having like meaningful, rich friendships, which they crave.
1: For me, that's the biggest, the biggest issue. The biggest issue for somebody who is intelligent, gifted, whatever you want to call it yourself. The loneliness and the isolation of that person can't be understated. And it it wallops at around about 11 or 12. Because up until then, you can kind of go with the games and you can kind of, you know, you can get distracted. You can... And then existential thought depth, you know, you're 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 kind of you're going deeper than other people. You're asking questions. You're being noticed for being different. And, you know, children, there's nothing more conforming than children and they don't like difference. And it's kicking in hard and fast. It might kick in a little bit younger, but it's very much an issue. And the loneliness of being very intelligent. I don't know how we can manage that. You know what I mean? That that these kids do need to find their groups. They do need to find their peers. And so therefore they should have opportunities. And yet we have to balance that with the burden of saying, you you know, you're, you're intelligent and therefore you need to find your peers. This is, you know, we really adolescence is so tricky because by the time you're 25, you've figured out you're clever and you've met your clever friends. But until then, you're all over the place. You know what I mean? Lucky. I mean, if
0: you're lucky at 25, right, yeah, I feel yeah. like in, in our generation, if you're me, you're me. 46. <laughs> you're clever fox friends. Yeah, that's you, Sasha. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's me. Um, but I mean, I think in our generation, I don't know why. It just anecdotally, it just felt easier to make friends. I think. um, I, I know a lot of young people today have a hard time socially connecting with each other. And so I wonder if by 25, most young people today have met their their group. I don't know if they have. I remember the relief of meeting somebody who who kind of got me.
1: Do you follow me? Uh, intellectually, I got him and he got me. I was about 17. Well, oh my, well, I was 17. It was life-changing. It was yeah. like suddenly getting into the water, having been... Dry on dry land all my life. It was it was incredibly profound. Yeah. And so when you do meet somebody after being isolated all your life, it, it can hit very very heavy and very hard. And if that happens to be an online community who are awash with theories and concepts and complicated ideas, I could just imagine you're just swimming along, going, "Give me more, give me more. Let me think about this. Let me." Discuss this, and frankly, I don't want to talk about the the, the, the transphobic ticks all around me. I want to go to my community. Yeah, you know, that's right. I can so see how they just suddenly think these are my people, and I have no interest in anybody else.
0: Yeah, I think another thing you, you talked about eleven year olds, twelve year olds. Another thing that I think starts to happen around like late elementary school is that schools will start to split kids up by sex boys over here, girls over here, or whatever. And I mm. think the the highly deep thinking kids, they immediately notice that and they they feel kind of weird about it. Again, that kind of philosophical question of like, why are we doing this? Why are boys and girls being treated differently? Whereas maybe other kids don't even bat an eye about it. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff that starts to happen around that age, including the isolation that we talked about in the social struggle. And, you know, um, I, I read a really interesting book called Living with Intensity, and it's about this trait of, it's almost like a physiological trait of your nervous system reacting stronger and taking in more from the environment. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about this theory, but one of the things I remember reading was that intense kids crave really deep relationships. So they're also dissatisfied with superficial relationships that are very common in teenagehood teenagers can be quite petty and quite flip about things so these deep kids they want intense dramatic mm. real relationships where they can get into these questions about life and that's hard to find i mean it's generally hard to find it's especially hard to find at that age and you know
1: what you know in other generations they found each other through the music they liked they found, they really did. And it's really noticeable to me. I used to, you know, tutor kids in, in different languages and stuff like that. And um, a common question to prepare them for the language exams was, you know, what music do you like? What films do you like? Things like that. Tell me about yourself. And then I noticed the kids had very little to say about music. So we're talking about 2000 to 2010. And I noticed music is just not a feature in teenagers' life. It's sliding away as a feature. And now it's just throwing music is like what's your favorite color? They've just so little to say about music. Well, I would have talked for months without <laughs> about music. I had so yeah. much to say about music. And I think a lot of the depth that you can find in the lyrics of songs, you you move to poetry, you move to novels, you move to literature from music. You start in music. And you move and you find your depth in the arts. And I really mm. think therapy doesn't quite bring in art enough. It doesn't. When I say art in the larger sense, it doesn't bring in music and books and all the nourishment which frankly kept me alive in my teenage years. That, <gasps> yeah, I just think we're no. missing it, man. we got to yeah. get it all in.
0: I feel lucky because a lot of the young kids I work with are still deeply engaged with music. And and with art. And I think that's such a lifesaver. And, you know, one of the things I've often thought about with, you know, the question of like whether or not to get a child assessed for giftedness or or whether or not to put them in a gifted program, I've often said to parents, you know, the goal should be to connect your child with other deep interests And not to spin circles around the giftedness label. Oh, nice. If your child develops a kind of superiority complex about being gifted, you've missed the point. The point is, other gifted kids are going to find passions that they want to talk about and teach each other about, and like yeah. interesting hobbies they can build together. That's the point. You know, if you're going to do it, it's for that reason. It's not so that you can sit on a pedestal and like brag about your gifted child, right? So I think you're totally right that having a, a deep curiosity and passion for, creative ventures and interests. And and this applies to the science kids too. I mean, these brilliant kids who develop, you know, brand new video games because of their coding abilities. I mean, this this intelligence is also translating as we become a more technological world. So the kids who are exceptional are now applying some of that to technology. And it's incredible what they do. And if a kid can find other peers like them, that have these kinds of interests that take up such a big place in their mind, like their energy for life. That's why I think people should pursue, you know, this, this diagnosis or I guess this assessment. My slight worry about that. I hear you and I'm nodding along, but my
1: worry is that art, music books at the risk of sounding like a dinosaur, there's a depth to them that art brings. And I worry an existential depth. And richness yes. that I think the gifted child needs, that depth. I worry, even though I don't know enough about video games uh to to really have a view, I worry that it's it's not as existentially rich. It's beautiful and it's technical and it feels more scientific. And I know there is a very much a place for, for talented people to be scientific and technical, but I actually think they need the depth that the arts bring. Yeah. I really do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things I I have a lot of kids that I work with who know a lot about video games. So by proxy, I've learned a lot, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not, not nearly as much as, you know, some of these young people, but something that I've realized is that certain types of games are really achievement oriented and it's all about leveling up. Right. Yeah. You have a kid who already has a tendency towards perfectionism and self-assessment constantly. Spending a lot of time in these games only makes that worse. And I do think it has a way of disconnecting us from more existential questions that are not just about earning points and, and ranking up and up and up.
1: Yeah, there's a great professor, Carol Dweck from Stanford. Do you know her? Professor of psychology. And she spent her life's work, well, a lot of it, studying why do some people with great potential um, go to great heights, like Barack Obama or whoever, and why do some people with great potential, equally great potential, choke? And what is the difference between these two? And she, she studied it in depth, and she um, basically identified their mindset as being the key difference. And some some people have a growth mindset, and so people have a fixed mindset, and if you have a growth mindset, you're 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 able to handle failure. You realise that you're always growing, you're always developing, and when you get a failure, you're like, "What did I? What did I? You know, what did I miss here? What do I need to improve?" You know what I mean? And Bill Gates said it. He said, "It's fine to celebrate our successes, but it's more important to learn the lessons of failure." Well, I'm not saying he's this great, but he's obviously a very intelligent man, and you can see there's a man with a growth mindset. Now, uh, a fixed mindset is. We think you have a fixed intelligence or talent so it could be soccer it could be maths it could be video games and if you have that mindset then you have to defend it and nurture it and everything all your eggs are in that basket and the day you hit failure on that you kind of collapse in on yourself because you think i thought i was good at maths and i got a bad exam and now my entire house of cards has collapsed so yeah nurturing a growth mindset in somebody is really important When you're clever, like I was with my fixed mindset at 12, I I was pure fixed. And Mm. I I thought rather than doing the test, I will avoid the test because I, I don't want to confront whether I might have weaknesses. And I think very intelligent people can feel like that. And it's a real issue and it's something to be very wary around. Now, put that into somebody who is achievement oriented who's kind of perfectionistic, who knows that they're clever and then throw in, throw in the trans kind of phenomenon that's going on online. Then they want to be the most perfect trans person. They want to they want to kind of identify imperfection. They want to go through all the things and they want to do them as fast as possible because they don't want any shoddy version because they've already identified themselves as exceptional so they have to be exceptionally trans they can't be a little yeah. bit trans identified they have to go all the way because that's their mindset and oh. i think it's really really care really, a really really dubious and dangerous mindset to have anyway her book yeah. is called mindset it's a really good book i'd recommend it
0: okay we'll put that in the show notes definitely um yeah i mean one of my favorite phrases to use in therapy is you are in a process. You are in a process. Nobody starts out great at something that they've been doing for five minutes, you know? And um, I think that desire to kind of reach mastery level really quickly is very common. And I've seen that in a lot of my exceptionally brilliant young people. And it can be crippling. It can put you in a position to where I'd rather not start at all or not try at all. Yeah. Unless I can be perfect at it. And that's a paralyzing mindset.
1: Yeah. This fear yeah. of failure, if you want to know whether you have a fear of failure or whether you're, um, you know, very driven by ambition, it's, it's quite easy to figure it out just for people to, for people to know A fear of failure, basically on the day of the exam or on the day of the big test or the, the, the competition, you're kind of vomiting in the waste paper basket. You're very intense and nervous. Afterwards, you're full of you know exuberance and you're thrilled with yourself. But beforehand, you are not in a good place. Well, if you're just driven by ambition, on the day of the exam, you're like Muhammad Ali. Come on, bring it out! I'm going to show everybody how fabulous I am. You're on and up because you know I'm I'm
0: I'm I'm on. I'm on. This is this is my strength. You know what I mean? I think I that to a fault because a lot of times. <laughs> I would think that I was going to kick ass on an exam and I would be so excited (laughs) to take it. And then the grade would come back and it would be so bad. (laughs) That's so sweet. (laughs) Whatever dial I have is like accidentally cranked up. Well, I think we need to
1: be aware that so many children come to me and I've no doubt come to you and they are bent bent backwards by their fear of failure they are absolutely this is a huge big issue in today's generation to an extent that when I give a lot of talks and schools and stuff every single time I talk of a fear of failure hands shoot up every single time I mention it in a talk people come up to me afterwards how to get over fear of failure fear of failure it's huge and Carol said you know people not a lot of children are being raised to be slaves of praise And so what Mm. started as a lovely movement in America in the 1980s of praising children and raising their self-esteem has led to children being completely slaves to it and reliant on it and always seeking external validation rather than having the very pleasant and profound gift of self-evaluation where you know when you nailed something and you know when you didn't. And that's a really lovely thing to kind of, Nurture in a kid and it won't just in case parents are having a freak out if they're listening to us it won't be done in a year you know you, you give yourself time to kind of re-nurture it in your kids you address the fear of failure I personally think it should be mentioned that somebody is has a fear of failure rather than pretending this is all ambition and this is yeah. all hard driven that it's actually more satisfying um on your soul if you say, yeah, you, you might have a fear of failure here and we might need to kind of help ourselves out with this because it can be very much a heavy burden.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can get people very stuck. I mean, you can't move forward if you're afraid of the next step. Yeah. I want to shift a little bit to talk about this concept of overexcitability, which is um, something that is probably also American. I mean, it was, uh, I think, first coined by I believe he's Polish, a psychologist researcher named Kazimierz Dobrowski, Dobrowski. And he identified these kind of five domains by which, again, he says, this is like a nervous system thing, five domains by which people just have disproportionately large intakes. And those five domains are psychomotor, which has to do with our physical kind of self in space. Um, Emotional overexcitability, sensual having to do with the senses, you kind of alluded to this with the clothing and the comfort, intellectual overexcitability, and imaginal overexcitability, which again, probably relates to that creativity, the art, the music, but there are these five areas where, um, You know, I think a lot of young gifted kids, when when you start to think about them through the lens of these five domains, you can really identify where um, those kids might be overexcitable. And I wonder if you have heard of this concept. Are you familiar with this? Maybe we could just talk a little bit about this. Um, I've heard it
1: mentioned, but I haven't studied it well, but I, I know it well insofar yeah. as I see it with the clients very often. And it's something that comes up again and again and again. The overexcitability, it feels like we're living in a, in a very overexcitable world. And I think it's, it's, it's definitely being, uh, exacerbated by the online, and that you know, it was constructed by psychologists. and you know the you know the social dilemma is a great film, and I really recommend anybody who's listening to watch it to give us a kind of an example of how it can lead us to excitability for no other reason than there's huge multi-billion companies who want likes and shares. and so they lead us to overexcitability. So that that's the one that i'm I'm most concerned about because I think it's the one that's the tail is wagging the dog and that and the overexcitability is wagging us all over the place at the moment and leading us to I don't know storm Capitol Hill or whatever you know.
0: I guess which which domain would you think that is or can you describe what you mean like how is it making us more overexcitable?
1: I think um, it's leading a, a, a heightened atmosphere online the reason why we've got a heightened atmosphere is that the the social networks are are checking into They're kind of, what's the word? They're clued into our emotional brains because we mm. know that's where they will get more shares, more likes, more traction. And I think psychologists have studied this, very clever psychologists have studied this so that their companies, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is, or Snapchat, will get the most traction. And so they've been actually constructed to make us excitable and to get
0: Emotionally, yeah. yeah, emotionally excitable, and you okay. know that,
1: that that great line from well, terrible line from, from journal, journalist school, which is if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, and I yeah. remember they did this amazing study in Canada of this uh Toronto, I think it was the Toronto Star, it was certainly a, a newspaper, and they realized that, that every single day, maybe it wasn't Toronto Star, correct me if I'm wrong, um. And they realised that every single day the paper had led with a murder, which was strange because there hadn't been a murder every single day in that uh, year in that city. And they they studied it and they realised, oh, my God, what's happened here is they've gone out of the district to get the murder in, to get the front page, because that's how you sell more papers. Now, expand that into the social networks and that's how they... Are getting us. They're 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 bringing us in with high emotion and shocking stories, and everything is on that heightened level. And then a heightened, isolated thirteen year old checks into social media and just says, "Whoa, this is just yeah. an emotional storm." And off they go on a
0: roller coaster. Well, I mean, one of the emotional overexcitability traits is just having really extremes of emotions, which, I mean, that's also very typical for adolescents. We we all went through that. Um, and, you know, one of the things that having an emotional overexcitability can do is it can make you feel very different from others. I mean, if, I think all of these excitabilities, when you look at how they manifest, they can make a young person feel very, very different. And I I hear over and over again from clients that, the main kind of reason that they know they have gender dysphoria or that they're trans is that they just feel so different. And so anything that is experienced by the person, which makes them an outlier is going to be one of those kind of proof points in someone's mind. Even if technically all of the emotional or all of the teenagers around you are also highly emotional, you just feel like, you're too much. You're over the top. You know, you are experiencing more than others. And so it just makes you feel convinced that nobody else is quite like you.
1: Yeah. And they feel that all that difference can be contained with one solution, that they were born in the wrong body. And that's why they feel odd and different and unusual and wrong and don't fit in and all the other things. I think it's such a seductive concept and it could be the root of an awful lot of uh, people who feel trans identified when actually they could have identified with feeling different. And if there was a new wave of I feel different, if that took over the the Internet, I feel odd, I feel different. Nobody's like me. Nobody feels like me. Nobody acts like me. That would be much more productive.
0: Well, let's let's look at some of the other excitabilities too, because I think they're really interesting. So in imaginal overexcitability, this might look like excessive daydreaming, detailed visualization, you know, having imaginary friends, lots of fantasy. Um, and again, you know, that kind of sensitivity to music, poetry, drama, things like that. So if you have these types of traits, you're also able to Kind of fantastically project yourself into your new identity in your mind. So even though you have a female body, you spend all this time just visually imagining yourself as a guy. And I hear a lot of kids like this who are artists, they're visual artists. Yeah. And they spend so many hours of their week immersed in anime and imagery and drawings and gay male fantasy uh, stories. Yeah. And they. Become completely enamored and and wrapped up in this fantasy world in their mind because their imaginal abilities are so, so strong.
1: Yeah. And they spend, you know, we all whiled away and it was really interesting. I whiled away hours and hours and thousands of hours imagining myself with various boys (laughs) and just basically stalking in my mind uh, various um boys in my teenage years, right and I remember thinking where would all these hours be if I was thinking more productive thoughts yeah. <laughs> I'd imagine a lot of teenagers do that and I'd imagine that the children who have gender dysphoria and who might identify as trans and stuff that's where they're imagining it. all those thousands of hours I spent imagining, what the boy was doing, where he was, what he was going to say, what I was going to say, what he'd say then, la la la, has gone into that fantasy life. And in this life, it's like, and we have to bring in the fact that an awful lot of children have been brought up in this Disney world where if you wish hard enough and if you imagine it and all, remember The Secret and Rhonda Byrne brought out that book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you just, you know, ask the universe and just it will come, you just have to believe hard enough. And you bring the secret and that whole concept and bring that into Disney and wishing upon a star. And, you know, the good guy always wins. And if you just think about it, you'll get it. And so they spend all these hours imagining, creating, drawing, thinking about their future. To rip that away from them feels heartwrenching heart-wrenching. But I do wonder, did, did most teenagers spend thousands of hours somewhere off in their head? Because <laughs> I certainly did.
0: Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time just in in imagination and fantasy. I mean, I think my, my sensitivities, whatever we want to call them, are less in the imaginal realm. I mean, I really relate to the psychomotor excitability. I, I'm someone who cannot sit still. <laughs> Everything everything to me comes through the body. My, my senses, my, my physical perception, my senses, I've done like so many different kinds of dance and sports and all these things. So I really relate to that. And just to think a little bit about stereotypes. I mean, if, if we're going to just talk about how a lot of kids diagnose themselves with gender dysphoria. If you have a girl who's physically competitive and kind of impulsive, which is really ADHD type traits here, can't sit still nervous habits, reckless in her speech, you know, like all of these things might make a girl feel like she's not really that girly. If we think that girls are quiet and timid and demure and like sit still in the same place. I mean, I've even heard people critique the way education systems move in the direction that is typically more, quote, geared towards girls that like, there's not as much physical play and activity. And I say, I can't relate to that, because I can't sit still ever. I mean, I've never been a quiet girl that just sits there. So, you know, if if a, a young person... Does have these psychomotor overexcitabilities? Might she feel very different from her female peers, or might she feel like that's not typical "quote girly" behavior?
1: And where should somebody go if they have psychomotor excitability? Should they get into to the dance? amusement park? <laughs> they should go to the amusement park. <laughs> <laughs> would you would you really into dance? And would you recommend it as that's you know, get into something physical?
0: Well, I mean, I think the world of movement is so huge and broad, and we're going to do an episode all yeah, about these days. But I think people just have to find what speaks to them. I mean, there are some people who end up, you know, really into climbing, and they will do rock climbing, and they'll be outdoors and hiking and that kind of thing. And other people, I mean, I, I connect very strongly with music. So for me, dance is a perfect physical activity I do lots of other physical activities too but there's so many senses being used when you are dancing because it's both physical and auditory and emotional there's a lot there lots of girls you know were and uh, boys too of course but you know into sports and team sports or running track I mean there are so many ways to express ourselves through our body so I don't know if there's one particular place a person should go but if you have A lot of physical energy I I worry that some kids are expending that through gaming and not actually through physical play and you can't you can't like hardwire or, or I guess you can't rewire that energy into your fingers and gaming because you crave physical stimulation like you need to actually physically get that out of your body so I think that's interesting. I think you've lifted up a really interesting topic. Um, my first
1: book was called Cottonwool Kids and it really studied the impact of how many children are living an indoors life. And, you know, the organic, you know, prison. And it's it's a cottonwool life, you know what I mean? And they're inside an awful lot and they're on their screens. And this COVID generation even more so. And um, those physical kids are particularly prone, I think, towards uh, the, the games because they're, they've got some sort of, I don't know, physical... Like a restlessness? Yes. Yes. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the the frankly, Machiavellian psychologists behind the video games are saying, yeah, bring them over. We, we'll get your physical kids and we'll make them monsters on video games. Yeah, <laughs> and like, I yeah. know there's some great beauty in video games and I know you can't write it all off, but I do really worry about the screen-based childhoods children are having. And I honestly think childhood is getting worse. I don't think it's getting more fun. I think it's 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 limping at this stage. It's not it's it's not as fun as it would have been. And I know I know people would say, Yeah, but it's safer. And I'm like, Yeah, but we have to balance because just because it's safe, you want to stay safe, you, you bring your kids up in a padded room, throw them screens, and that's safe. And then suddenly it's not safe because it's not mentally healthy. So you have to balance your safety with your risk and you have to I think children aren't out enough. And I know, you know, there's a good few books on screens and children, and they've noticed in studies, and it's very interesting, that the more physical restrictions on children, as in their their radius of activity around their house. So, back thirty years ago, the radius of activity for a twelve-year-old might have been three miles, and now mm-hmm. it's about five hundred yards. It's much shorter. The radius of activity is really, really, really reduced, and the more physical restrictions on a teenager, the more risks they take online.
0: <gasps> yeah. That's not- Surprising. I mean, I, sh- I went, oh, but you know what? It makes perfect sense because it's yeah. part of the impulse of adolescence is to be risk taking. You need risks. So you're gonna Find your way.
1: You're going to yeah. find your way. And what 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 these gifted kids, where are they taking the risks in their brain? They're taking kind of psychological risks. They're pushing yeah. themselves. They're challenging themselves. They're going into queer theory. They're, they're really kind of ex- risking their brain. If you follow me, I think that's where they're going. And I can see why, because they're not having any physical risk. There's not enough risk in their life. There's not enough challenge because it's indoor screen based and they feel the need to kind of push out.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've heard I've heard others talk about this, but in my experience, the kids who develop ROGD are usually usually not um, highly athletic kids you know, I think there's some kind of risk that is done when we are physically pushing our bodies in, in a certain way. But if you don't really push your body beyond its limits, what's next? You know, I'll push my brain, I'll push my ideas, I'll push my identity, I'll push my presentation. So I do think that need for kind of pushing boundaries exists, whether kids have the opportunities or not. And the the last area of um, overexcitability that we haven't really talked about is the sensual overexcitability having to do with the five senses. So these are kids who really appreciate beauty. They might crave like physical pleasure, but I see more often a sensitivity kind of in a negative way. So highly sensitive to certain textures, smells, sounds, kids who can't really tolerate like loud noises, like a tactile sensitivity to the way clothing feels. So, you know, in those cases, if there's a child who feels overstimulated by the physical environment, They probably don't want to take physical risks. Like I agree so much with you, Stella, that kids need to be out there experiencing the three-dimensional world. But if there are kids who feel, you know, like, oh, I can't go outside because it's too hot or I don't like the smell of, you know, I don't know, (laughs) some kind of thing outside and they're just indoors all the time, they're going to take different types of risks if the sensual capacity is overloaded easily. Well, yeah. And more than that,
1: there's been a societal shift since the 80s. And I studied it in depth in that first book, Will Kids, where, you know, Stranger Danger got over overstated, very badly overstated. And it made an awful lot of parents very scared. And they've even, you know, there's some great podcasts on it. They've even identified which was the first kind of Stranger Danger that kind of hit America really hard. And from that, the children's um, physical freedom got very restricted. And as it got restricted, it got further and further restricted. And as it got restricted, a multi-billion industry was growing on screens at the very same time. And now, as a result, we have an awful lot of obesity and we have an awful lot of very physically restricted children who don't want to go out because they haven't yet. They're like the caged bird where the window is open and the bird doesn't want to go out because they're afraid to go out because they've been led to believe outside is fearful. It's scary. it's, It's too big and intimidating. And those children these days don't want to go out. They want to go on their screens because that's where they're comfortable. And they don't know what they're missing. But I know clients have told me, my friends are better online, I'm better online, and the sex is better online. And they've never actually kissed or had any fumbles because they haven't been willing to go there physically. They'll only go there through the shield of a screen. It's a restricted mm-hmm. life and they don't know what they're missing. And it's, it's a really frightening combination of what's happened and put a gifted kid into the middle of all this and you're really getting of course they feel awkward because they are gifted they are alone they might feel physically um what's the word challenged because they know they're psychologically challenged they've developed their intellectual brain and they mightn't have developed their physical side of their life and so they're afraid to meet people from the opposite sex or people from their own sex are afraid to develop their sexual body because their sexual body has never really been to the forefront of their life. Their own body, their physical body hasn't been something that they're proud, proud of. They're disconnected from it and they stay screen-based with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the physical side and at the beginning, we were talking a little bit about the, the intellectual side and this kind of playing with new ideas. And I'm thinking about, you know, the programs that do cater towards these types of exceptional kids they're seeing really high numbers of trans identified kids i mean i've talked to lots of parents who they they've reported that you know more than half of the do- the ch- the girls in their daughter's school identify as trans I mean, more than half, you know, and I I wonder if there's a similar thing happening in Ireland, too, when when people do address giftedness or exceptionalism.
1: Only enough there is. There's only really uh, one that I know of. Maybe people will know more, but there's only one centre. It's called Centre for Talented Youth. And an awful lot of kids who've come to me have been there. And um, it seems to be a really good programme, really interesting programme, science based. It's set in a university and it's only very intelligent, talented kids that go there. However, there's a huge amount, I should say whoever, it's it's something I've noticed that an awful lot of children who are trans identified have gone there and they have things like Trans Tuesday, whether it's among the kids or or elsewhere. And to people, you know, maybe uh, there there's a lot of emphasis on um, queer theory and I'm sure those concepts are fascinating for children of this generation. However, it's been very noticeable to me in Ireland, that there is, there's the gifted kids, and funnily enough, they have a they have concepts that are really kind of focused on gender issues. It feels like wow, wow. The only you know, the only certainly the only center I know. You know what I mean? So it's it's an interesting combination that I've noticed, and I think it's a fabulous center. I think it obviously does some really brilliant programs, and. I think, I doubt it if it's isolated. I'd say it's all over UK and America, similar scenario. Yeah,
0: I I know of some summer camps that parents have sent their kids to and they didn't know that this was going to happen, but they had like cross-gender Saturday or something where all the kids were told to kind of dress in the opposite gender clothing. And, you know, to be honest, if this was in a different context, I would think that's really great. I think it's great for kids to, you know, be willing to, you know, try on something different or experiment with something different. But given the context that these are kids who are actively playing with identity and they don't understand biology I think that's a very slippery slope and tricky so it does seem like a lot of programs that cater to a certain like parent demographic and a certain student demographic are really actively playing with these categories and these gender roles and gender identities in a very explicit way Mm. and
1: maybe it's because they enjoy I would say it's because they enjoy new ideas and queer theories and new ideas so bring it on and they want to explore it and now it's 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 kind of run it's not just queer theory it's critical
0: theory i think and all the kind of theories around What's gender that. identity it's the gender identity theory i think
1: okay yeah yeah and i can see why all new ideas are interesting for intelligent people so they they play with them and yeah. if if you play with them i think it's great i think it's really interesting to expand ideas And um, I think it's also very interesting to to, to delve into philosophy and to delve into music and to delve into art. I think delving into one aspect is quite narrow minded. I think so long as it's balanced with all the others, it makes it massive and really, really interesting and rich.
0: Yeah, I I think in the sense that I get is that in, in gifted education, there tends to be a desire for novelty and cutting edge and like new, new theories of learning and new theories of how to educate these kids. And frankly, gender identity is so cutting edge. I mean, I I wonder if we're starting to teeter into something different. It's not so cutting edge now, but I think these programs probably quickly get on board with the gender identity concept because it feels cutting edge and it feels revolutionary and it feels so new. Um, though my opinion is that it really lacks existential depth which i think we were talking about earlier this is what intelligent exceptional young people crave so i wonder if they're actually falling short
1: yeah and if i if i if i you know knew a child and i know many of them who are are very gifted or exceptional and they're hitting the kind of stormy seas of 11 12 15 16 biggest gift you could give to them is what you identified which is depth passion that's that's where you'll feed them that's where you'll nourish them more than anywhere else
0: thanks for joining us this week on gender a wider lens this podcast is partially sponsored by rhyme rethink identity medicine ethics Rhyme is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more.
1: If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash pod.
0: Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.